John 17, 14 through 19. And in this passage, Jesus is praying for his closest companions, the disciples, uh, before he goes to the cross. Hear God's word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of all praise. We thank you for worshiping here together as your body. I ask that you would speak through me, a flawed mouthpiece, and penetrate the hearts of my fellow flawed listeners so that we can follow you more closely and live to honor you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, uh, after I graduated college many, many moons ago, um, I lived in the Northeast for five years. I was working out there for a missionary organization called Young Life, and a coworker of mine was from Australia. Great accent. And uh, the first time I met him, I was just kind of asking him about the differences in our cultures. Not, not just differences in, like, you know, the toilet bowl go, drains a different way. or You know, I was asking about significant things, and uh, not just minor differences. And you know, he began complaining about certain aspects of American culture. And as he went along, I couldn't necessarily disagree with him. He was talking about the materialism in the United States and uh, just how everything had to be kind of bigger and innovative and kind of cutting edge, you know, those types of things, really consumeristic and, uh, you know, just a materialistic culture. And, you know, I thought that was interesting and was agreeing, generally speaking, could, could certainly see where he was coming from. But I also started to suggest that, like, well, we're, we are in the Northeast. I was originally from Ohio. I was explaining that to him. And it's not like that everywhere. Um, not everywhere in the United States is about just being bigger and better and you know, having pizzazz and showmanship. And, and so we're having this conversation uh, in a very quiet uh, conference center is where we were that day in a, you know, this hotel lobby kind of area. And then for some, some reason, as I'm kind of defending my country <laughs> a little bit, uh, there was this uh, giant costumed Rugrats character that came in. Now, if you don't remember what Rugrats is, it's this, it's this kid show, it's a, it's a cartoon, and uh, without getting into too many details about this cartoon show, it's about babies that would get into some stuff and, and around their house and, and all that. And so there's this, as I'm defending the anti-materialism of, of Ohio, the Midwest, uh, this, this giant, you know, seven-foot baby with a diaper on is, is kind of meandering and dancing through the hotel lobby. And, uh, you know, obviously it's completely reinforcing his view. Um, and so whatever I'm saying now is just completely lost. He's not even listening anymore. And, um, you know... I, the conversation essentially ended at this point with, and he said this in complete disgust, by the way, he, but this is what he said. He said, ugh, this country. <laughs> That's how it ended. Um, so cultural gaps have always proven to be difficult to bridge. Um, now, in the ancient Roman world, Christians lived very differently and often looked strange 
to the dominant majority culture. And I'll give you one example of this. Okay, so the practice of infant exposure, right? Infant exposure is the ancient practice of discarding unwanted babies, like treating them like garbage, essentially. And um, so this meant leaving a baby out in the wilderness to die from you know, exposure to the elements, or you know, as the baby would cry, it would draw attention from, from predators. Without getting too graphic, you know what that means. So if a woman were to get pregnant in the ancient world, which, by the way, just in case anyone is confused, only women can get pregnant. That seems to be an issue now. Uh, I, I do say that with sensitivity towards uh, those that are, you know, suffering from mental illness or gender dysphoria or, the, or these issues. But uh, you know, we don't we don't affirm delusion. That's not the way to do that. Um, anyways, but if a woman were to get pregnant in the ancient world, uh, infant abandonment would 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 be would be common. It would be um, considered to be practical in some ways in, in that culture. Uh, it was accepted as normal in the ancient Roman world. So there's a letter, I'll give you this one example, in the year 1 BC, okay? So a few years before Jesus was born, 1 BC, um, a, a letter had been found. It was written by this man named Hilarion, and he was away from his pregnant wife, who also had another child, and uh, likely away serving in the Roman army. And in the letter, he wrote kind things, like you would expect maybe a husband that misses his wife to say. Things like, take care of the little one, you know, referring to his already born child, he also said to his wife some endearing things like, how can I forget you? I beg you then not to be anxious. But uh, he also said about his unborn child, right before those kind words to his wife, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. Talking about infant exposure there. Now, Jewish people and eventually Christians were known to pick up these babies to save them from time to time, uh, which is often considered highly unusual in the, uh, in the Roman world. And early Christian writers, such as Justin Martyr, uh, expressed disgust at the practice of infant abandonment. But uh, that's one example of many of these cultural differences. And you know, God's people have always been called by God to live differently than the surrounding pervasive majority culture. And, uh, and, and calling us to rise above these challenges, these cultural challenges. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in today's reading from John 17, our reading today is a prayer from Jesus about the disciples living in the world, uh, you know, to, to rise above these cultural challenges, maintain their identity as God's people in a world that looks different, that believes and values different things. And uh, it's easier said than done, as, as I'm sure at some level we all, we all know. Uh, so today's sermon will ask some questions, um, some of them being... General questions, what was the first world, you know, what, what was the first century in the world like at that time? Um, how does their cultural response that they pursued relate to our modern day response to cultural challenges and issues and concerns? So to understand the word of God, especially as we look at the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, it's important to understand the culture of the Bible and what was going on at the time. You know, the, the reading between the lines is culture there that's, that's understood that we often miss. Uh, the main culture leading up uh, to and into the New Testament time was called Hellenism. Okay, Hellenism. Now, Hellenism is the word that refers to Greek culture. Okay, Greek culture. Hellas refers to a Greek worldview, hence the term Hellenism. Um, now, 
when I say worldview, I just mean way in which you view the world. Like if you put on glasses that are darker colored to block out the sun, the way you view the world is, is darker, it's tinted. And same thing, there was a Greek cultural worldview at the time that was, that was completely dominant. And so I'll give you some context about Hellenism. Uh, 334 BC, if you've heard of the name Alexander the Great, okay, Alexander the Great, he conquers Palestine. He didn't just conquer Palestine, I mean, he conquered like everything. Uh, defeated Darius, you know, the Persian Empire, went and defeated Egypt, um, went and defeated Darius a second time to completely annihilate the Persian Empire, so co conquered everything, but it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't just through military force. You know, the, the primary influences that became known as Hellenism, it included things like education. You know, if you've heard of the, the word gymnasium, that's from the Greeks. Okay, if you've heard of, you know, healthcare, they, they had kind of the first hospitals. Uh, you had entertainment, like the world had never seen before. They built these, these theaters. You know, they have dramas and, you know, stadium-style seating. They had athletic competitions and, and gladiator battles. Um, there, were, there were certain luxuries that came along with, with uh, living in a Hellenist, Hellenistic culture. You know, water coming directly into your homes. Uh, you had this beautiful architecture. Um, you had roads. Uh, you, you know, all these different things that come along with, with Hellenism. And so it was almost like people were kind of wanting to be conquered by the Greeks in some ways just because of the structure that came along with it. There was also persecution, though, you know, heavy persecution. The, the, uh, the Seleucids, okay, they were the Greek kingdom that took over Palestine after the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, the Seleucids oppressed the Jews under the leadership of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. And he burned the scriptures. He banned the Hebrew people from worshiping God in their Jerusalem temple. Uh, he forced God's people by penalty of death to sacrifice, to make, make sacrifices to false gods. Okay, so it was a polytheistic culture, poly meaning many, uh, not monotheistic, mono meaning one. Okay, it was a polytheistic culture. So, of course, many of the Jews, um, they did not like that one bit. And, you know, uh, the, the Jewish people, and after Jesus, the, the Christians, had to answer this question. How do we respond to this culture of Hellenism that is invading our space and world? Uh, is, it, is it possible to be faithful to God and live the way that God is calling us to live? So our text today shows Jesus praying for his disciples to be in the world, impacting it, you know, sharing the truth of the gospel with others while also being separate from it, while also being separate from the world. You know, if you've heard the term or the phrase in the world, not of the world. In the world, not of the world. Okay, that's not necessarily a quote of any sort of scripture, but it's, it's more of a concept that comes out of, you know, for example, our reading today. Being in the world, but not of it. Being separate from it, distinct, looking different, but also impacting it. Okay, living faithfully as followers of Jesus can be difficult in a, in a uh, being surrounded in a world that is often difficult or even against God. Okay, so in the New Testament, Jesus entered a world dominated by Roman rule. The Romans eventually conquered the Greeks. <clears throat> but Hellenism was still the, the prevailing culture. The Israelites were dominated by a foreign imperial force. And there are, this is what I'm going to get into. I know there's a long introduction, but I had to go through some history there. Five major responses. Okay, five ma major responses that God's people had to Hellenism. Okay, now Christians can learn a lot about God's word and learn how to live counterculturally, 
today by analyzing these five responses to Hellenism. Um, and it really helps us to read the under, uh, and, and understand the Bible uh, a lot better as well. So the first response, Sadducees, Sadducees, okay? The Sadducees are a group, it's, it's mentioned in Scripture, uh, a couple places, uh, Matthew 16, Acts 4 and 5, but the Sadducees come up consistently in, in the Gospels uh, and in Acts, and it stems from the Hebrew word of Zadokites, which stems from this guy named Zadok. Uh, 2 Samuel 8, 17, you can read about Zadok, uh, but but Zadok became the high priest, which is like the leader of the priesthood in, in Israel, and uh, you know, by casting lots to replace the Levitical priesthood. I won't get into all that history. Just know that, you know, long story short, the Sadducees could have been descendants or even simply just sympathizers of the Zadok priesthood. Okay, so they were priests. They were Jewish priests. And um, the majority of the gospel priests were Sadducees, actually. You know, if you hear about a priest in the gospel, Statistically speaking, uh, it was a Sadducee. Now, not all priests were Sadducees, but they were a powerful group of priests. So when Rome conquered Judea, when Rome conquered everything, and that was in 63 uh, BC, the Sadducees decided to make a deal with this guy named Herod. Now, Herod, if you've heard that term, he shows up in the Bible too. It gets kind of confusing because there's a bunch of Herods running around. Uh, he has a lot of kids, and so, but this Herod is known as Herod the Great, okay? Great in the sense that he was extremely wealthy um, and oversaw massive, incredible building projects and, and things like that. Uh, not so great in that he was a murderous tyrant, uh, killed his wife, killed his, a lot of his kids. Um, but, you know, interesting guy. The, the Sadducees say to Herod, before he was known as Herod the Great, hey, marry one of our daughters, okay, like a Jewish princess, and that way you can be considered Jewish, and uh, that way you can be our king. And Rome would agree with that because you're so wealthy and it'll all work out. So the Sadducees had this like back, back alley deal with, with Herod to become king. Herod says, sure, let's do this. Uh, possibly the wealthiest man ever even, some say. Like he owned the spice trade, all, the, all this stuff. But he agrees to be king. And uh, so Herod also assumes control of the, high, of the priesthood over the Jews. Okay, so what that means is he gets to determine who the leader of the priest becomes, the high priest. And he said it goes to the highest bidder. Okay? Now, what could go wrong when you bring money and politics together? It doesn't happen in this country, of course. <clears throat> but, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the house of Annas, be, you know, assumed the, the high priesthood, which if you remember Caiaphas, he's a descendant of Annas. These are all people mentioned in the, in the Gospels. Uh, so when you have money being exchanged, obviously corruption is not far off. So the Sadducees, they became corrupt. Uh, there's a, Roman, a Jewish Roman historian, Josephus. He mentions that the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich. You know, his point was that they became identified with just the corrupt religious political elites. Um, you know, the, a, a religious mafia of, of sorts, really. And so they shoulder a ton of responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion, actually, the Sadducees. They partnered with the Pharisees. I'll talk about the Pharisees in a minute. They're one, they're one of the five responses as well. Um, they were usually opponents of the Pharisees because they believed different things theologically about God. Uh, but here they became opponents of Jesus, the Sadducees were. You read about that in Matthew 16, how they paired up with the, with the Pharisees there. And, uh, you know, they have, the Sadducees have the apostles arrested later. That's in Acts 4 and 5. So they're mentioned a lot. 
One home in Judea had, uh, of a Sadducee had 17 rooms. Gives you an idea of how wealthy these people became. But uh, they believed in, you know, that, well, it says in a lot of places in Scripture that they did not believe in the afterlife. You can read about that in Matthew 22, 23, Mark 12, 18, other places too. So they, didn't, they also didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. I mean, like they denied that God was completely, totally powerful. Um, so you can see why they butted head with the Pharisees at times too, because the Pharisees denied that. Anyways, bad things about the, the Sadducees, their response. Uh, well, they, they really lost who they were supposed to be. You know, when, when Hellenism came along, um, they became something completely different than what God intended the priesthood to, to look like. And that's because they decided to partner for her, uh, with Hellenism for their own personal gain, their own personal wealth and power and influence. And, and perhaps that relates to, to modern-day Christians in, in some ways. Um, you know, we, we could often say, I know Jesus wants me to live this way, but it will be easier or better for me if I do it the world's way, right? Are there some good things about the Sadducees? Well, you know, maybe there are ways to work with the dominant culture, right? And, rem- and also remain faithful to God. Like that, I think, c- can happen. Um, you know, do we like water coming in t- from pipes into our homes? Like I would say so. Do we like new, safe, beautiful, structurally sound buildings, those types of things? Sure. And so the Sadducees perhaps show us that there are things to be gained from engaging the culture. Um, we don't need to reject it all. Now, the, that, so that's group number one. Group number two is the, Herod, uh, the uh, Herodians, Okay, the Herodians, they're also mentioned in the, in the Gospels as well, pretty consistently. A couple places here is Matthew 22, 16, uh, Mark 3, 16. Uh, it's mentioned extra-biblically as well, um, historical accounts and things like that. And the Herodians were Jews that supported um, Herod the Great and his descendants and, 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 and the, the foreign leadership. Okay, so there were Jews that really supported the foreign leadership. And a lot of Jews, you know, didn't agree with that, but they, they did. And so they also kind of partnered with the Hellenist culture as well, but still tried to remain uh, as faithful Jews in the process. Now, basically they're, they're saying, uh, maybe, I can, maybe I can worship God, but I can still probably go support gladiators slicing each other up. Everyone's going. We're going to go cheer that on, right? Uh, they might say... Well, yeah, I worship God, but I might, I might be able to worship Roman gods too, right? And so there's a lot of compromising here. They said, they said I can have the benefits of Rome and God, perhaps. And that's kind of way a lot of them, to, to varying degrees, but uh, some of them went, went those directions. Uh, they wanted acceptance in the culture, in the dominant culture, uh, the comfort, the guilty pleasures of Hellenism often. And, uh, but still tried to either be faithful to God or at least look faithful to God as, as Hebrew people. Are there some good, is, is there some good here? Well, like the Sadducees, they saw no reason to exclude all the benefits of Hellenism, okay? Uh, bad, well, many lost their identity and ended up compromising their, their faith in God. Now, at this point, perhaps looking at the Herodians makes you a little bit uncomfortable. It probably should, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, chances are every single one of us will relate to being a Herodian, at least at, at some level, uh, maybe more than any other group that I, that I mentioned today. Um, so now that we're a little bit convicted, I'll move on to perhaps the, the other group here. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, uh, the, the Essenes, okay? 
That's the third group, the, 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 uh, the Essenes. We're not specifically or directly called out in Scripture, but uh, their influence is definitely there. And everyone would have known who the Essenes were. Um, you know, they would, they would look at the Herodians and, and say, uh, well, we're supposed to look different. We're supposed to be separate from the culture. And, and the Essenes would be correct. You know, you have passages like 2 Corinthians 6, 17. It says, therefore, come out from them and be separate, God says to the Hebrews and eventually the, the Christians as well. As this, that's recorded in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Come out from them and be separate, God says. God says to the Hebrew people. Our reading today in John 17, 14 says the world will hate followers of, of Jesus. That's what, that's what we just read earlier. Um, and Jesus prays in verse 19 that his followers will be sanctified, which means set apart for God's purposes, right? To be completely set apart. Um, so the next time you're reading in the Gospels and you come, come across Herodians, think, yeah, that's, that might be me. Um, at least I, I kind of do. Anyways, the, Eth- the uh, Essenes know that, and they're thought to be priests who mostly abandoned the, the Jerusalem priestly system. Now, they abandoned it and went elsewhere due to the corruption that they saw. They said, we're out of here. We're going into the wilderness. That's what the Essenes said. Um, and, and they left to the, to the desert, and they were kind of like separatists. And purity was really important to the Essenes. Uh, they clothed themselves in white every day and participated in purification baths in cold water. Uh, the Hebrew term for this is mikvah. They had this uh, purification bath. And the Essenes didn't only do this. There were other Jews that participated in, the, in uh, bathing in a mikvah to, be, to, to become pure. Um, but uh, you know, this one community that's kind of famous is the Qumran community, and most scholars agree it's, a, it's, a, it's an Essene community. And so they had this intricate mikvah system mikvot system, and it, they would, in the desert, gather all this water. It's really, really crazy how they did it, but they, but they did it. And they also had an admirable commitment to the biblical text, the Essenes did. Now, Essene communities made copies of hundreds of biblical and other ancient documents. And um, it's said that some Essene communities copied biblical scrolls with this four-person process, all right? So they had two pairs of people at times, and so the first person if they would copy, let's say they were copying Genesis 1. So the first person would read Genesis 1. He'd say, you know, in the beginning, God. Now the person behind him would confirm that he was reading it correctly. And he'd say, in the beginning, God. And then the second pair would take over, that third person would write, in the beginning, God. And then the fourth person would confirm that he wrote it correctly, in the beginning, God. And so they had this really deep uh, attention to detail copying process of the text. Now, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls, that was an Essene community um, that, that made all those copies of the biblical text. Now, when they, you know, I think it was early 1950s, maybe you know, 51 maybe, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it was all these, these really ancient copies of the Bible. And the accuracy of the scriptures shocked everyone. You know, it was like, oh, this is, and some of these copies of, you know, Isaiah or whatever, hundreds of years before you know, older than the copies that they previously had, and they're like, oh, it's the same. You know, it shocked, it shocked everybody. So we owe a lot to the Essenes uh, and people like them for, for copying the text like they did. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Admirable commitment to the text. You know, I think we can all appreciate that. And so these scribes would, um, the Essene scribes would also bathe. Uh, you know, I said every day, but they, they would also bathe before they started 
uh, their scribal work of copying the biblical text. And, this is kind of interesting, whenever you came across the word Yahweh, which the Jews considered the, the, the name of God, Yahweh, whenever they came to Yahweh, they'd stop, they'd stop writing and go bathe again and then come back and then write, write, continue on. And, Yahweh. and then when they came to Yahweh again, they'd stop, go bathe again, and then come back. If you want uh, just kind of a, a, a comical visual, look at uh, Psalm 29 and see how many, how many Yahwehs are there. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, if you see a capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, uh, where, where it's all capitalized, that's Yahweh. Uh, you know, we, we translate that to capital Lord, uh, but it's in, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. So problems with the Essenes. Well, you know, you have, you have an isolationist group, right? And so they, they kind of got away from everything and, and headed to the wilderness. And from the very beginning, God's covenant with Abraham, you know, you look at Genesis 12 through 17, God chooses people. You know, he chooses people. And he says to Abraham, I'll bless you, but why? Well, it's so that you can be a blessing to others, right? Uh, I'll bless you with a relationship with me so that you can bless others. And, you know, you can't really bless the world if you're away from it, right? And... Um, you know, Israel was uniquely and geographically placed to, uh, to impact, you know, the other civilizations around them. And, um, you know, so modern day context, I think maybe we have a tendency to watch the world around us and um, watch it being negatively influenced where we should, you know, be engaging more, right? And so the Essenes, I think, could be accused of, you know, maybe shrinking back um, from this responsibility. Uh, we need to impact others as the church. Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Uh, being a follower of Jesus means that you're the light, and that means being around dark places so that you shine. Um, so the Essenes arguably maybe shrunk back from this calling. Now, good things, you know, obviously reverence for God's word, I think, is there. Don't agree with every single interpretation that the Essenes had. They actually expected two messiahs, one priestly and one royal. Um, Jesus fulfilled both of those things, um, but, um, you know, also, are there not sins that we need to distance ourselves from, you know, to, to flee from, right? 1 Corinthians six eighteen talks about that, talks about fleeing from sin, so we can learn a lot. I like the Essenes. We can learn a lot from the Essenes. Uh, fourth group is the Zealots, all right? So, now, the Essenes, they ran, isolated themselves a little bit from Hellenism. Uh, the Zealots were, they had a violent response to Hellenism, <laughs> Um, one of their staple passages was Numbers 25. And in Numbers 25, there's a Jew named Phineas, and he executes a couple who were engaged in extreme disobedience to God. And, you know, Phineas was said to have this, this zeal, this, this passionate commitment to obedience to God. And um, groups like the Zealots clung to that. Um, now, later on, uh, before, well, before the Zealots, but after Phineas. Later on, the Maccabees, uh, who were Jewish freedom fighters against the Greeks, they're inspired by historical heroes like Phineas from Numbers 25 to overthrow foreign Greek rule, to establish their own Jewish kingdom. And they had this passion for independence, you see. And so later, still, the Zealots come along, and they reference that same type of zeal to fight in, um, for independence from Rome, Okay? Um, now, it's said that the zealots would take an oath to kill any lone Roman soldier that they came across. 
And uh, you know, the use of this, this like beveled, the, the curved dagger uh, was often associated with the zealots. They would, um, the, the, the curves would help a blade slide between the, the armor plates that, that the Roman guards would wear. And um, you know, if a Roman guard was walking through a crowd, a zealot would, 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 would knife them in a, in a crowd and slip away unnoticed. Uh, so a lot of history here that I, I can't get into just for the sake of time, but um, plenty of Jews were disgusted with things like the pagan king Herod assuming control in, in this back alley deal with the Sadducees in uh, 45 BC. Uh, Herod would attack Jewish freedom fighters in, in, in Galilee, and um, there were a lot of attacks and battles, and um, you know, Jews would stay hide in these, in these caves, and the Romans would smoke them out and, and slaughter them. And, uh, you know, another example is from Gamla, which is um, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Gamla was a zealot compound. And what happened there is, like, some estimate that 20,000 Jews were executed by Rome in in these situations. Now, Rome considered zealots eventually to be, like, terrorists. Um, uh, And and the zealots considered themselves to be freedom fighters. You know, get out of here. This is our land kind of thing. And there were a lot of battles. There's Fort Antonia, if anyone's ever been to Jerusalem. You would have seen this. Um, they, the zealots, the Jews, retaliated against Roman rule. And they told the Roman soldiers, hey, if you just lay down your weapons, okay, just give up, we'll let you go. So the Roman soldiers laid down their weapons, and they were slaughtered. You know, so bad blood, you know, real bad blood is kind of the point that I'm making here. Now Simon, okay, one of Jesus' disciples, is called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot in Luke 6.15 in Acts 1.13. Uh, does this mean he was one of these freedom fighters, one of these potential terrorist freedom, freedom fighters? Um, it, it is possible this term is misunderstood because the extremist faction, like those who called themselves officially zealots, uh, did not emerge, again, officially until the beginning of the first Jewish revolt, which happened in 66 AD. It was, it was after the time of Jesus, um, you, know, for, you know, nearly 40 years later. Um, so, we, we also have examples of ancient authors like Josephus, a historian that I mentioned earlier, that zealot was simply a term used generally for someone who is very intense about something. Um, you know, so if Simon wasn't, if Simon, you know, Jesus' disciple, if he wasn't specifically a former Jewish, like, assassin or a freedom fighter for a particular official zealot group, at the very least, he was, uh, he was intensely religious, um, very likely had strong political views about Rome's domination of the Hebrew people. So at the very least, we can, we can say that, uh, potentially maybe officially part of some zealot group. Uh, now, problems here with the zealots? Well, violence, of course, uh, is a problem for those who want to follow Jesus. Um, as followers of Jesus, we should be as close to being pacifists as possible. Now I say is you know pacifism meaning um, unequivocally nonviolent no matter what, um, and I'd say as close as possible to that because most Christians agree like well if there are ex- extreme examples extenuating circumstances of self-defense or you know just wars or or things of that sort uh, most Christians agree that you know that that's a good thing, um, and so you know is there good is there good that can come from the the zealots, well you know. They were action-oriented people, and they were genuinely concerned about the oppression of, of others, you know, especially their own people. And um, you know, they had this passion, this, this chutzpah, right? this, this zeal to be agents of change. And you know, sometimes when you're faced 
with true evil, and you're looking at it in the face. You can't just run from it like the Essenes did. Uh, you can't partner with that. You can't partner with it like the Sadducees did. You can't compromise with it and play with it like the Herodians did. Uh, and so there is, I think, something to be learned about that. And, you know, if, if my family was smoked out of a cave and slaughtered by some imperial force, uh, you're looking at a zealot right now, you know what I mean? And I think I'm looking at some potential zealots as well. Um, so so that's, that's the zealots. And the, the last group is the shortest group because most people are familiar with them. It's the Pharisees. Uh, they're mentioned the most consistently throughout Scripture. And uh, the Hebrew word is paras, and it you know, may mean one who is separate. That's where a lot of people think that the Pharisee, that term came from. And they had this really similar zeal to the zealots. Okay? Now, their commitment, their, their passion, uh, was not directed towards military action. Their, uh, their passion was directed towards strict obedience to God's word. And, uh, you know, I, I've basically been asking the question, hey, what do you do about a pervasive culture that's uh, interfering with your walk with, with God? And, uh, you know, what, what do we do about Rome? And these different groups were responding in different ways. You know, the Sadducees, they partnered with it for their own personal gain. The Herodians, you know, kind of got in bed with them. The Essenes said, what Rome? Uh, they left. And, you know, the Zealots were, we're just going to kill Rome. We're just going to kill Rome. Uh, the Pharisees were, were different, and they basically said, let God uh, deal with Rome while we focus on absolute obedience uh, to God. And, you know, they said, when we are the people that God wants us to be, God will deal with Rome when he's, when he's good and ready. And that's, there's some good things to that. Uh, so the, did the Pharisees get it right? Uh, well, not exactly. Uh, the Pharisees are, they became hard on sinners, uh, they basically could point to someone sinning in their community and say, you, sinner, are the reason that Rome is still here. You, know, you, sinner, are the reason why we don't have Messiah, the Savior, coming back right now. If you live like us, God would already be reigning. And so, you know, obviously, there's some, there's some problems here. You have being judgmental. You have self-righteousness coming in. Um, the hip, hypocritical. You have, uh, there's very little room for grace, you know, in the Pharisaic world. And, you know, when math, uh, in Matthew 10, 8, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Well, they didn't necessarily, when they're all, you know, working really hard to do exactly what God says uh, to the letter of the law and, and that type of thing, um, you don't recognize that as being freely given anything by God. Uh, you're you're kind of earning it, right? And so they couldn't freely give grace to, to others uh, as well. So there's some problems. There's some good things. Um, how about moral excellence, a commitment to moral excellence? Could we use some of that? <laughs> Could we use some of that in our culture? I think so. Um, you know, very serious about being obedient to God's desires. And, you know, this isn't for earning salvation, of course. Um, you know, it's for living a life that God wants. Uh, God doesn't give stupid rules. Um, his ways le lead to human flourishing. And a commitment to that is a really good thing. Um, it's really a blessed thing. It leads to a blessed life and a blessed society as well. And uh, the Pharisees, and some could argue, uh, you know, were headed down the right path in a lot of ways. Um, and I know they get kind of bad, a, a, a bad rap in the Gospels because they went after Jesus, right? And they did. Um, but there's a lot of historical documents that say the Pharisees were, were the most respected out of any of these groups. 
um, really highly regarded in a lot of points of Jewish history. Um, so, you know, it's not about earning God's love, of course, but, um, you know, that's always going to be there. But it's a good thing to pursue moral, moral excellence in society and individually. Now, you may identify with a few of these responses that I went through, <clears throat> some more than others. I mentioned the Herodians um, as one that we probably all for sure um, can relate to. I don't think we have any problem with any, anyone running around knifing anybody in the ribs as a zealot, but, um, you know, I, when you ask the question, how, how are we perceived? If we're actually more closely related to the Herodians, how are we perceived, though? Well, I think it's more like we're perceived by the prevailing dominant culture as Pharisees. And so we have this weird combination that's not a great cocktail where we're actually Herodians, but we're viewed as Pharisees. <laughs> um, it's not a great combo. Um, now, uh, so w- which way is right? You know, well, none of them and all of them. You know, that's the problem when you talk about how do we follow Jesus in a culture that often denies God's ways. And I'm not giving you a formula here. And I think that's the point. Jesus is praying that we would cling tightly to him as we walk with him, study his word together, and walk in community with each other. Like, and that's, that's kind of the best answer that we get. Thankfully, we have the resource of the Holy Spirit to guide us, right? So I'll, cl- I'll close with, with kind of these thoughts. Um, I pointed out how biblical people responded to their surrounding culture. Uh, Christians can learn a lot from history and God's word about how we can respond uh, today in modern times. And our text shows part of Jesus' prayer, that his disciples are in the world, impacting others, uh, reflecting God to others, not doing it perfectly, no doubt, that they would stay faithful to him and still look uniquely like his people. Are there things from the culture we can learn from and partner with non-Christians in? Yes, absolutely, and you know, we hope that we're humble enough to do so. Are there things we should flee from, get the heck away from? Yes. Uh, yes, there are, there are those things. Are there things we should fight? Is there evil in this world that is a direct attack on, on things that God values? Yes. Uh, followers of Jesus need to be courageous and fight. We hope this fighting remains metaphorical, of course, not literal violence, but uh, you know, exploring peaceful and legal options with zeal uh, is needed. Do we need a commitment to moral excellence, knowing that our behavior matters and glorifies God? Yes. Uh, But we know that we are sinners and saved only by God's love and grace. May God grant us the wisdom. This can only be done that way, by his spirit in Christ-centered community to do this. Let's pray. God, we individually and corporately need you, your word, and, uh, and each other to respond well to a culture that in some ways can be hostile towards your desires. Um, Help us to walk uh, with wisdom, cling to your word, follow you, encourage one another, help and protect one another as we impact others for your causes. Uh, We need to draw on the resources of your spirit to do this. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.